Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 8, Driftwood. Describing his arrival in New Salem after the bitter winter of 1830, Abraham Lincoln told his friend William Green he, quote, came down the Sangamon River as a sort of floating driftwood on the great freshet produced in the thawing of the snow. The hamlet had proven a safe harbor for Lincoln. By the middle of 1832, the community had seen something in this young man, dressed in a loose coat and cotton pants that were forever exposing his bare shins. Caleb Carman, who Lincoln would board with for a time, said, quote, My opinion was of Mr. Lincoln when I first met him. I thought him a greenhorn. Though, after a half hour's conversation with him, I found him no greenhorn. His conversation very often was about books, such as Shakespeare and other histories. He seemed to have the run of politics very well. He was opposed to slavery and said he thought it a curse upon the land. But Lincoln, coming off his first election campaign, would have to wait two years to make another attempt on a legislative seat. In the meantime, he needed to make a living. And he didn't want to strain his muscles to do so. He wanted to become a professional. Lincoln first turned to retail. Clerking at Denton Offutt's general store had been his only professional experience. He often visited Samuel Hill's New Salem operation, where people swapped stories and the young man always had an audience. Robert Wilson, one of Lincoln's political colleagues, said Lincoln in repose, quote, had nothing in his appearance that was marked or striking. But, he added, quote, when enlivened in conversation or engaged in telling, or hearing some mirth-inspiring story, his countenance would brighten up. The expression would light up, not in a flash, but rapidly the muscles of his face would begin to contract. Several wrinkles would diverge from the inner corners of his eyes, and extend down and diagonally across his nose. His eyes would sparkle, all terminating in an unrestrained laugh in which everyone present, willing or unwilling, were compelled to take part. But running a store could benefit him politically. Hill was an active Democrat, and Lincoln had spoken at general stores during the 1832 campaign. He could certainly meet more voters while selling goods. This led to a partnership with William Berry. Berry is a mysterious person, shaded in the memories of his neighbors by everything that was about to happen. But unlike Denton Offutt, Lincoln's first employer, Berry was a more tragic figure. He was a minister's son who served as a corporal under Lincoln during the Black Hawk War. Lincoln, two years Berry's senior, later wrote that the younger man, quote, was as poor as himself. Berry was also an alcoholic with a bad reputation, deserved or not. George Spears, who lived in nearby Clary's Grove and knew Lincoln, later told William Herndon that, quote, It always was a mystery to me why a man of Mr. Lincoln's integrity would enter into partnership with such a character. Now, to be fair, Berry was never accused of criminal activity, unlike Jack Armstrong and the thuggish Clary's Grove boys. Lincoln throughout his life gravitated toward damaged people, and that, perhaps, drew him to Berry. 
The younger man got into the operation first, purchasing a half-interest in a store from James Herndon, a local merchant. Lincoln bought the other half six weeks or two months after Barry, as Rowan Herndon remembered. It's not clear if the two men went in as partners, if Barry asked Lincoln to join him or Lincoln asked Barry, or if they got into the enterprise independently. But by the end of 1832, Barry and Lincoln were partners in a general store, selling dry goods, mostly sugar, salt, and coffee, as well as clothing. Each man went into debt for his share. This was a risk. Barry and Lincoln competed against Hill's well-established store and another business operated by Reuben Radford. They probably hoped New Salem would grow big enough to support three stores, or that they might outlast one of their competitors. The latter actually came to pass. In January of 1833, the Clary's Grove boys wrecked Radford's store after he refused to sell them more than two drinks apiece. Lincoln's old co-worker, William Green, who had been Radford's landlord, bought his stock for $400. Green then sold the stock in the building to Lincoln and Barry for $650. Again, the partners went into debt to complete the transaction. To bring foot traffic, Barry applied for a license to sell liquor for six cents a glass. Whether Lincoln sold liquor himself was a matter of dispute. Historian David Herbert Donald says the license issued was in both men's names, but that someone else signed for Lincoln, who was effectively a teetotaler in his adult years. Most New Salemites saw nothing unusual in a store selling whiskey. William Green said the store contained, quote, dry goods, groceries, liquors, such as one was kept everywhere in the country at that time. It seems likely Lincoln, a partner in the store, would have given drinks to customers, though James Davis, who imbibed at the operation, insisted that Lincoln, quote, never sold whiskey by the dram in New Salem. Whatever the case, it became a political headache. His rival Stephen Douglas would later accuse him of being, quote, a flourishing grocery keeper in the town of New Salem. Lincoln would try to sidestep or fudge the issue. By the spring of 1833, it was clear Lincoln and Berry weren't selling enough whiskey or anything else. The local economy was part of the problem. New Salem had stopped growing and was beginning a slow, downward slide. But neither Berry nor Lincoln were suited to business. Berry tended to get most of the blame from neighbors who remembered the failure 30 years later. Green said Berry's, quote, negligence and bad management, though not dishonesty, led to the store's collapse. But Lincoln was no businessman. He couldn't close sales. He was oddly shy around female customers, and he was far too willing to let bills slide. They did nothing but get deeper and deeper in debt, Lincoln later wrote. And sometime before May 1833, the store winked out, as he put it. As historian Michael Burlingame writes, quote, He and Barry extended too much credit, bought and sold goods unwisely, failed to keep items properly stocked, and invested so much money in slow-selling merchandise that their stock became an unappealing hodgepodge. In short, they had little aptitude for business. Lincoln and Barry owed hundreds of dollars in debt at a time when they might be fortunate to earn 33 cents a day from manual labor. Worse for Lincoln, Barry died of tuberculosis in 1835, and all the outstanding debt fell on Lincoln's shoulders. 
He told a friend it amounted to $1,100, roughly $27,000 today, plus interest. At a time when people burdened with this kind of debt would just skip town, Lincoln decided to work it off. Historian Ronald White writes that this was the source of Lincoln's nickname, Honest Abe. But if he maintained his respectability, the national debt, as he called it, sucked up his income for years. Herndon wrote that Lincoln didn't retire the debt until he was in Congress in the late 1840s. Burlingame writes that Lincoln was paying creditors up until the eve of the Civil War. Whether because of this experience or his father's, Lincoln would always be wary of business opportunities. He would rely entirely on the wages he could earn, which would keep him resolutely middle class before the presidency. The disaster forced Lincoln back to day labor, plowing, harvesting, and splitting rails. It could only have been discouraging for the young Lincoln. But he had a circle of admirers in New Salem, and they kept an eye out for him. An opportunity soon appeared at Samuel Hill's store. Hill, like many merchants of the time, served as New Salem's postmaster. But locals complained he neglected delivery to attend to business. Jason Duncan, Lincoln's doctor friend, circulated a petition to replace Hill. Duncan later said, quote, I'm receiving notice from the department to acquit himself of the charges preferred, or steps would be taken to turn him out as postmaster. He resigned the office in Mr. Lincoln's favor. Postmaster appointments were political prizes, and by rights, the Democrats in control of the postal system should have blocked Abraham. Lincoln later wrote that the office was, quote, too insignificant to make politics an objection. There were 8,000 post offices in the United States by 1830, the most extensive system in the world at the time. The historian Daniel Walker Howe writes that the mail service drove transportation improvements. Bidding for mail delivery contracts helped the steamboat and stagecoach industries. But because merchants who delivered the mail also sold whiskey, the local post office could be anything but sedate. Howe writes, quote, The federal government mandated that post offices open every day, and this overrode whatever state and local laws might require Sunday closing. The post office thus became a conspicuous exception to general Sabbath observance in small-town America. On Sundays, many men would flock to the local post office after church to pick up their mail and have a drink. The mail in New Salem came twice a week. People either picked it up, or Lincoln took it to them, carrying correspondence in his hat, which became a lifelong habit. Postage stamps were still in the future, so recipients paid for delivery, based on the distance traveled and the length of the letter or weight of the package. Lincoln put the money received, quote, in an old blue sock in a wooden chest under the counter, according to historian Ronald White. As in his storekeeping days, Lincoln was disorganized and less than stringent on bill collection. In 1835, a man named Matthew Marsh wrote in a letter that Lincoln, quote, is very careless about leaving his office open and unlocked during the day. Half the time I go in and get my papers without anyone being there, as was the case yesterday. But he went on to say that Lincoln only charged 25 cents for one delivery, and, quote, even if he had been there and known it was double, he would not have charged me any more. Luckily, he is a clever fellow and a particular friend of mine. Marsh went on to write that he was going to get Lincoln to send his letter free of charge, which Lincoln did. 
mail delivery was not lucrative. According to David Herbert Donald, only one year of Lincoln's time as a postmaster is fully preserved, and it showed he earned just under $56 for the year. But there were other perks. Delivering the mail meant meeting dozens of potential voters, which may have explained his generosity about payment and allowed him to read all the newspapers he wanted. His favorite was the Louisville Journal, the organ for his political hero, Henry Clay. But Lincoln also read the local Sangamo Journal out of Springfield, and two newspapers based in Washington, the National Intelligencer and the Congressional Globe. But Lincoln didn't make a livable wage until a friend named Pollard Simmons petitioned the county surveyor, John Calhoun, to give Lincoln a job as an assistant surveyor. Calhoun was a Democrat, and when Simmons told Lincoln he got him the job, Lincoln asked, quote, Do I have to give up any of my principles for this job? If I have to surrender any thought or principle to get it, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Simmons assured him he did not. Again going into debt, Lincoln acquired surveying tools, including a compass, marking pins, plumb bobs, and the 66-foot Gunter's chain, made of 100 lengths with a ring every 10. He also got two books on surveying, very technical manuals with a lot of tables. Mentor Graham's daughter later claimed that Lincoln, quote, would call at our house and get my father to calculate the figures and get the number of acres. My father and Lincoln would sit till midnight calculating, unless mother would drive them out to get wood for cooking or for Sunday. Beyond the math, surveying could be physically exhausting. As Donald writes, quote, On a typical survey, Lincoln, accompanied by two chainmen, had to push into briar patches, slog through swamps, and cut through wilderness undergrowth in order to set their markers and measure their angles. At the end of a day's work, he would often come in with his clothes torn and his legs scratched up from the briars. When friends tried to commiserate with him, he would just laugh and say, that was a poor man's lot. But the work proved a good match for Lincoln's logical mind, and as difficult as it was, surveying was important for the community. Lincoln laid down chain and spikes in the middle of a land boom around New Salem. He got $2.50 for surveying 160-acre parcels, known as quarter sections. It was the most lucrative work Lincoln had ever done. He eventually surveyed four towns, including nearby Petersburg, and helped lay a road through New Salem. Henry McHenry, a friend of Lincoln's, recalled a dispute with neighbors about the corner of a piece of property west of Petersburg. He hired Lincoln, who surveyed the property for three days. McHenry said, quote, The disputed corner arrived at by actual survey. Lincoln then stuck down his staff and said, Gentlemen, here is the corner. We then went to work and dug down the ground and found about six or eight inches of the original stake, sharpened and cut with an axe, and at the bottom, a piece of charcoal. Work like this spread Lincoln's reputation and almost certainly improved his political prospects. Still, Lincoln aimed for something more. Robert Rutledge, one of his New Salem neighbors, said that whenever he was working, Lincoln would have a book on hand. Rutledge said, quote, When passing from business to boarding house for meals, he could usually be seen with his book under his arm or open in his hand reading as he walked. If he wanted to memorize something, Rutledge said, quote, His practice was to write it down. I have known him to write whole pages of books he was reading. Lincoln tended to read for practical purposes, not for pleasure. 
He was never into novels, and like many Americans before and since, made an unsuccessful attempt to finish Ivanhoe. But his friendship with Jack Kelso almost certainly deepened his appreciation of Shakespeare, and Lincoln also became fond of the poetry of Robert Burns, both for its musical qualities and the biography of the poet, who rose from humble origins to win worldwide fame. Lincoln also studied philosophy in New Salem, including Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason and the Comte de Volney's The Ruins. Burns, Paine, and Volney all had this in common. They were, in the parlance of the time, freethinkers. It was a broad term that encompassed any kind of belief or non-belief outside of traditional religion. Burns and Paine both celebrated a simpler faith that shunned religious routines. A Cotter's Saturday Night, a poem by Burns, drew a portrait of a poor peasant reading his Bible. The poet wrote, quote, How poor religion's pride, in all the pomp of method and of art, when men display to congregations wide devotions every grace, except the heart, the power incensed, the pageant will desert, the pompous strain, the sacerdotal stole. But happily, in some cottage far apart, may hear, well pleased, the language of the soul and in his book of life, The Inmates Poor and Roll. It was one of Lincoln's favorite poems. Paine's Age of Reason, first published in 1794, was an argument for deism. Not surprisingly, this made him a target of the American clergy throughout the 19th century. Paine was not hostile to everything in traditional Christianity. On Jesus of Nazareth, Paine wrote, quote, he was a virtuous and an amiable man. The morality that he preached was of the most benevolent kind. And though similar systems of morality had been preached by Confucius and by some of the Greek philosophers many years before, by the Quakers since, and by many good men in all ages, it has not been exceeded by any. But Paine called Christianity, quote, a sort of religious denial of God that, quote, professes to believe in a man rather than God. He added, quote, Whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we called it the word of a demon than the word of God. It is a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind, and, for my part, I sincerely detest it, as I detest everything that is cruel. In its place, Paine offered natural religion and celebrated the power of reason to reveal God's mind. Paine wrote, quote, The creation is the Bible of the deist. He there reads, in the handwriting of the Creator himself, the certainty of his existence and the immutability of his power, and all other Bibles and testaments are to him forgeries. Paine's statement of faith was, quote, I believe in one God and no more and I hope for happiness beyond this life. I believe in the equality of man, and I believe religious duties consist in doing justice, loving mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. The Comte de Volney was a French philosopher who had traveled in the Middle East in the 1780s and was later imprisoned during the French Revolution's reign of terror. He escaped and took a trip to the United States where he met George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson helped translate Volney's The Ruins into English, and Lincoln probably read this version of the work. 
Volney's chief argument in the ruins was that individuals rely on self-interest, or what Volney called self-love. Volney called this, quote, the moving principle of every individual, and argued that in moderation, it led to great things. But when abused, led to selfishness, what Jefferson translated as cupidity, and ultimately, despotism. It's easy to read Volney and wonder if Lincoln saw his own life in the pages. For example, Volney wrote that the father of the house, quote, made his own affections and desires the rules of his conduct. He gave or resumed his goods without equality, without justice. Like Paine, Volney was critical of traditional religion, which he saw as essentially something invented by the strong to oppress the weak. States were tormented, in Volney's words, by, quote, the passions of the priests. He added, quote, Sometimes, hypocritical and cunning, they have called from heaven a lying power and a sacrilegious yoke, and credulous cupidity has founded religious despotism. By these have been perverted the idea of good and evil, just and unjust, vice and virtue, and nations have wandered in a labyrinth of errors and calamities. Lincoln could easily sympathize. He had seen frontier churches led by uneducated ministers and rent by community disputes. New Salem provided no counterexample. The Reverend John Berry, his partner William's father, denounced his son William and disowned his daughter for marrying at age 14. Burlingame writes, quote, Not only did he never again speak to her, but when her firstborn died, he did not attend the funeral. He limited his formal grieving to a momentary pause in his gardening as his grandchild's funeral procession passed his farm. On the other end of the spectrum, Lincoln's friend mentor Graham got thrown out of his church for joining a temperance society. The historians Douglas Wilson and Rodney Davis write, quote, Some predestinarian Baptists disapproved of temperance societies, whose activities were considered efforts to alter matters predestined by God. Graham then got kicked out of the Temperance Society for drinking, at which point he was brought back into his old congregation. Religious practice like this brought Lincoln's contempt. He liked to tell a story about a Methodist preacher criticizing a Unitarian. Quote, Why, the impertinent fellow declared that all shall be saved. But, my dear brethren, let us hope for better things. Lincoln, who knew the Bible well, noted inconsistencies and contradictions within its pages. He soon rejected key Christian beliefs, such as the divinity of Jesus. Jesse Fell, a longtime political ally of Lincoln, said Lincoln's views on, quote, the innate depravity of man, the character and office of the great head of the church, the atonement, the infallibility of the written revelation, the performance of miracles, the nature and design of present and future awards and punishments, were, quote, utterly at variance with what are usually taught in the churches. At some point in 1834 or 1835, Lincoln wrote what James Matheny called, quote, a little book on infidelity. Lincoln discussed printing it with Samuel Hill, who, thinking of the young man's political career, told him to burn the pamphlet. When Lincoln resisted, Hill grabbed it and threw it into a fire. Nothing with Lincoln is set in stone and during the Civil War, his feelings toward the Bible would soften. He attended church services with his wife, but never joined a congregation. 
As Fell said, quote, His religious views were eminently practical and are summed up in these two propositions, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. He fully believed in a superintending and overruling providence that guides and controls the operations of the world, but maintained that law and order, and not their violation or suspension, are the appointed means by which this providence is exercised. Lincoln's religious views also reflected his deep respect for the Enlightenment and its emphasis on rational thought. But a belief in the perfectibility of man carried the implication that humans were well below perfection. Michael Lind, in his book What Lincoln Believed, wrote, quote, Lincoln's emphasis on reason was all the more urgent because, like others in the Enlightenment tradition, he thought that most human beings were driven by self-interest, passion, and habit. Unlike many great political leaders, he was not a great hater, and his willingness to forgive both personal and political enemies was rooted in his low opinion of human nature. Lincoln had a healthy respect for those who fought for something greater, particularly the generation that fought the American Revolution. Speaking to the New Jersey Senate in 1861, Lincoln would recall reading Parson Weems' Life of Washington as a boy, in particular, Washington's crossing of the Delaware. He said, quote, The crossing of the river, the contest with the Hessians, the great hardships endured at that time, all fixed themselves on my memory more than any single revolutionary event. I recollect thinking then, boy even though I was, that there must have been something more than common that those men struggled for. The Declaration of Independence, and its assertion that all men are created equal, was the magnetic north of Lincoln's thought. For much of his life, Lincoln's ideas of what equality meant were as constricted as those of other white Americans. But when the Declaration itself came under attack by pro-slavery Southerners in the 1850s, the defense of the foundational principles of that document gave Lincoln an absolute direction in his political career and led to the most eloquent expressions of his philosophy. But in early 1834, his politics were local. Lincoln was a popular Whig in a district where the majority Democrats were divided. According to Stephen Logan, Lincoln's later law partner, New Salem Democrats were angry at the county party for not adequately supporting their preferred candidates in 1832. This division led Lincoln's mentor Bowling Green, a leading Democrat, to make the 25-year-old an offer. If he ran for the legislature that spring, local Democrats would remove two of their candidates from the rolls and support him. What success Lincoln had in 1832 was due to Democratic divisions within New Salem. If he could further consolidate county support behind him, he would get his seat in the Illinois House. But New Salem Democrats were not being altruistic. If Lincoln pulled in Democratic support, he could prevent John Todd Stewart, a rising star among the Whigs, from winning re-election. Lincoln immediately recognized this and approached Stewart during a shooting contest at a nearby lake. Stewart later remembered Lincoln saying, quote, Stewart, the democracy want me to run. The older man, appreciating Lincoln's honesty and confident in his own strength, simply replied, run. Unlike his first political contest, Lincoln did not publish a campaign agenda and spoke little about national issues, either to avoid alienating Democratic voters or simply because it was an off-year election. He pledged to work to carve a new county out of Sangamon centered on New Salem. 
That would have allowed the creation of a local court and saved New Salemites the 70-mile trip to Springfield. Lincoln also reaffirmed his support for local infrastructure, in particular a canal that would link the Sangamon with Beardstown. For the most part, though, Lincoln relied on his network of friends and admirers, as well as his own winning personality. During a stop at Rowan Herndon's house, he went into a field to speak with 30 men taking in a harvest. When the crowd told Lincoln they wouldn't vote for someone who couldn't work in the field, Lincoln replied, quote, Boys, if that is all, I am sure of your votes. Herndon said Lincoln took hold of a cradle, a kind of scythe, and, quote, led the way all around with perfect ease. The boys was satisfied, and I don't think he lost a vote in the crowd. But word of Lincoln's unconventional religious beliefs had gotten around. Russell Godby, one of Lincoln's friends and someone who had hired Lincoln as a surveyor, remembered an Isaac Snodgrass telling people in New Salem not to vote for Lincoln because, quote, Abe was a deist. James Matheny said his preacher father loved Lincoln, quote, with all his soul, but hated to vote for him because he heard that Lincoln was an infidel. But Godby, a Democrat, voted for Lincoln, quote, against my political creed and principles, and never regretted it. One of Lincoln's friends, Hawkins Taylor, later claimed that when Democratic sheets with endorsed candidates disappeared, he printed his own and put Lincoln's name on them. Taylor said, quote, I let each man named whom he pleased for governor and the other state officers, but not one of them could name four members for the legislature, and then I would get in Lincoln's name. On August 4th, Election Day, Lincoln got 1,376 votes in Sangamon County, more than double his votes from two years before, and good enough for second place, putting him in the legislature. John Todd Stewart also won re-election, having focused his efforts on knocking a potential Democratic candidate out of the race. Lincoln, at age 25, had won his first political campaign. He was excited not only for the salary the job would bring, $4 a day was the most he had made to that point, but also for the respectability it offered. Shortly after winning election, he visited a friend named Coleman Smoot. Smoot, he asked, did you vote for me? When Smoot said he had, Lincoln replied, well, you must loan me money to buy suitable clothing, for I want to make a decent appearance in the legislature. Next time, we'll talk about Lincoln's first session as a lawmaker, which will slowly pull him toward the law as a profession. We'll also visit a legendary tragedy that will contribute to his first breakdown.